that they must follow the laws of Moses. Paul's main point is that faith without works is a false gospel. In fact, Paul says faith, I'm sorry, faith plus works is a false gospel. In fact, Paul says that faith plus works is no gospel at all. I'm here to tell you this morning that faith without works is dead. Let's do a quick review. Last week, JP told us that a group of Jewish believers called Judaizers because they believed you must live according to the Jewish laws and customs were trying to convince the Gentile Christians of Galatia that they must keep the law. Specifically, they were pressuring the Galatians to be circumcised. But Paul makes it clear that there's no need to add to the works of Jesus. The gospel is based on faith alone. Hear what Paul says in Galatians 1, and this is from the Amplified Bible. He says, I am astonished and extremely irritated that you are so quickly shifting your allegiance and deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different or contrary gospel, which is really not another gospel. But there are some people masquerading as teachers who are disturbing and confusing you with a misleading, counterfeit teaching, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ twisting it into something which it absolutely is not. Paul says these Judaizers are confusing and misleading the Galatians with counterfeit teaching and a distorted gospel. In Galatians 2.16, he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Paul's message is clear. We're justified by faith alone. And then we have James telling us that faith without works is dead. How can this be? Is James teaching a false gospel? Does he not believe in faith alone by grace alone? Was there a conflict in the early church between James and Paul? How can Paul say, if you add anything to faith, you nullify the work of Christ, and James say, say, if you don't have works, your faith is dead. Let's look at two verses side by side. Again, from Galatians 2.16, Paul says, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then James says in chapter 2, verse 24, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, we believe the Bible is inerrant and it's infallible. But these two verses seem to be teaching two different views on justification. Paul says we're justified by faith, not works. James says we're justified by works, not faith. Justification cannot both be by faith and not works and be by works and not faith. That would be a contradiction. What is a contradiction? Aristotle defined it many years ago, and he said that the same thing should at the same time both be and not be for the same person and in the same respect is impossible. So to analyze the text, to determine if, in fact, there's a contradiction, we must determine the following. First, is the same person or thing under consideration? Yes. In both cases, the writer is addressing the same person or persons, that is, believers in Jesus Christ, and the same thing, that is, the justification of those believers. Second, is the same time period in view? Again, yes. There's nothing in the the text that would indicate that Paul or James were uh, teaching on justification in a way that was time-sensitive or time-bound. And then finally, we need to look at the language. Is the language that seems to be contradictory employed in the same sense? Here we find an answer to the, to the question. 
Paul and James are not referring to works in the same way. Paul is teaching against the idea that we need to add to the sacrificial work of Christ. The Church of Galatia and believers throughout history have fallen into the false teaching that says, a Christian is one who puts their faith in Christ, and then to make sure that they're right with God, they also must keep the law, or be circumcised, or go to church on Sunday, or have a meaningful quiet time, or do good deeds. These believers are confused, and they have been misled. As Paul says, they've fallen into a are fallen for a false gospel that is really no gospel at all. They believe that there is something that they can and must do to earn God's favor. Paul wants us to know and to understand that there is nothing we can do. There is nothing you or I can do to earn salvation or to attain righteousness. When we depend on faith plus works, We not only assume a role in our own salvation, but we nullify the all-sufficient substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 2, 20 and 21, The life I now live in in the flesh, I live by faith in in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Of course, Christ did not die for no purpose. He died to rescue sinners. He died to rescue you and me from the misery and separation from God. We are sinners deserving of God's wrath and punishment, but Jesus, our Lord and Savior, paid the penalty for our sin. He willingly gave his life so that we might live. Jesus Christ did what we cannot do. We are saved through faith in Christ alone, Christ as our Redeemer, and that faith is given to us by God's grace alone. As Michael Walters reminded us several times, we are saved through faith alone, by grace alone. Now, when James says that faith without works is dead, he's referring to the works that come as a result of our faith, not works done in an effort to add to our faith or to earn faith or favor with God. James says, because you are justified by the work of Christ and have been made alive in Christ, your life should be changed. And an evidence of that change is that you will do good works. In his book, An All-Round Ministry, Charles Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, We have been clear on the fact that good works are not the cause of salvation. Let us be equally clear on the truth that they are the necessary fruit of it. Look at what Jesus says in John 15, verses 1 and 2. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And then dropping down to verse 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So when we do good works, when we bear much fruit, we prove ourselves to be disciples of Jesus. Like Paul, James was addressing a false teaching And that teaching said that you can have faith without works or faith without any evidence of a changed life. This teaching has continued from the first century to the modern church today. There have always been people who falsely taught and believed that if you are justified by faith while you were a sinner, then you can continue to sin or continue to live just as you had been, and you will receive even more grace when you are ultimately saved at death. Paul addresses this in Romans 3.8 when he says, And why... And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. 
In the same way that faith plus works is a false gospel, so also claiming faith without any evidence of a changed life is a false gospel. When you further study Galatians and James, you find both Paul and James use the story of Abraham to support their positions. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul quotes from Genesis 15, when God brings Abraham outside and he says, look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to do them. And then God said, so shall your offspring be. And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Paul quotes these verses to prove his point. Abraham was considered righteous based only on his faith. James, on the other hand, uses a story found in Genesis 22 of Abraham and his obedience and willingness to sacrifice his only son Isaac as a demonstration of his faith. Abraham didn't just believe, he put his faith into action. He trusted the Lord to fulfill his promises. Abraham was considered righteous because of his faith, and James tells us that Abraham demonstrated his faith by his works. So why is it important that our faith result in works? Why isn't faith sufficient? Four years ago, Christianity Today interviewed evangelist Billy Graham about his then new book, The Reason for My Hope, Salvation. When asked, why, according to the title of your book, is salvation the reason for your hope, Reverend Graham answered, I was burdened to write a book that addressed the epidemic of easy believism. There's a mindset today that if people believe in God and do good works, they're going to heaven. It should not be surprising if people believe easily in a God who makes no demands, but this is not the God of the Bible. Satan has cleverly misled people by whispering that they can believe in Jesus Christ without being changed. But this is the devil's lie. To those who say you can have Christ without giving anything up, Satan is deceiving you. Well, I wasn't familiar with the term easy believism. I'd never heard of it before, so I did a little research. And I found a website, Got Questions, and they define the term, or they say the term is used to describe those people who believe that they are saved because they prayed a prayer. They prayed a prayer with no real conviction of sin and no real faith in Christ. Praying a prayer is easy. That's the term easy believism. But there's more to salvation than just mouthing words. Through my research, I found that there are theologians on both sides of this issue people who write and defend their position in favor of and against easy believism. So what's the impact of easy believism? According to a recent ABC News BeliefNet poll, some 75% of Americans surveyed identified themselves as Christian. Respondents cited 50 different religious affiliations, ranging from Buddhism to Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, even those who say they have no religious affiliation. But of all the choices, 55%, I'm sorry, 53% identified themselves as Protestant and 22% Catholic. So adding those groups together, you get 75% of adults in this country claim to be Christian. That's three out of four people. I don't know about you, but that seems very high to me. So let's put that into perspective. According to uh, recent census estimates, there are 325 million people in this country. And if we subtract the roughly 20% that are minors, we're left with 260 million adults. 
And if 75% of those 260 million are Christians, we have 195 million Christians in this country. Hang in there just a minute. I've got a little bit more math to do, but I'm going to give you all the answers. So according to this poll and this survey, 195 million American adults claim to be a Christian. In comparison, the Bureau of Labor Statistics in their July report states that there are just over 150 million people in the U.S. workforce. So there are 45 million, or 30% more Christians, than there are in the U.S. workforce. If that were the case, wouldn't the traffic be worse on Sunday morning than it is on Monday morning? There's something wrong with these numbers. I don't know the real number, but I submit that there are a few easy believers in that 75% survey result. That is, people who claim to be Christians because they believe in Jesus, but with little or no evidence of true faith. I know that there was a time when I fell into that group. There was a time when I claimed to be a Christian because I had said a prayer. I believed the devil's lie that I could have Christ without giving anything up. That I could believe in Jesus without being changed. So here's my story from easy believism to true Christianity. I was raised in what you'll call a Christian home, which means we went to church most Sundays. I believe my parents were Christian, uh, were both Christians when I was growing up, but I don't really remember them talking about their faith very much when I was a child. Now, by God's mercy and grace, over the past 30-plus years, they both have grown into very mature, very faithful Christians whose lives and actions demonstrate and reflect their faith daily. But that, I don't remember that being the case when I was a child. So as a kid, I attended Sunday school, summer Bible schools. I was involved in youth groups. I had a basic understanding of God. I knew about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I knew that a person could be saved from hell and would spend eternity in heaven if they believed in Jesus. My understanding of the gospel was simple. If you put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. It was very much an easy believism faith. When I was about 12, the church we attended offered a communicants class to young people. And as the name suggests, this class was designed to prepare young people to become full communing members of the church. The class covered topics like church history, a little bit of doctrine. We studied the catechisms. We looked at the Westminster Confession of Faith. We memorized the Apostles' Creed. And we spent some time learning about the Lord's Supper and the elements. Then we studied the questions for membership. And at the end of the class, I was asked if I was ready to become a member of the church. At the time, I was convinced that I was on board with all the things that I had learned. I'll tell you, even today, looking back on that experience, that I believed the things I had been taught. I believed Jesus was the Son of God. I believed he was the Messiah. And I believed that if I believed, I would be saved. So I met with the leadership that I stood before the congregation, and I answered yes to a number of questions, and I formally became a Christian. Well, I became a communicant member of a Christian church, but I'm not sure that I became a Christian that day. For you see, over the next 14 years, my life did not reflect the life of a Christian. There was little evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in my life. I was living in the world without any real distinction between me and the unbeliever. If someone had asked, I would have told them I was a Christian. I would have told them I had faith in Jesus. I would have checked the Christian box on a survey. But my life was not changed. 
there was no evidence of, of a true Christian faith, I certainly did not have any good works. Look at what James says in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Here we have a person in need of basic sustenance, and one, one who needs to be delivered from their poverty, yet the only help they get is empty words. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. In the same way, I needed to be delivered from the poverty of my sin, but I was claiming the hope of salvation based on my own empty words. I was using my knowledge of God, my knowledge of Christianity, even my knowledge of Jesus as the Messiah as a substitute for true, life-changing faith in Christ. I didn't know it at the time, but I was a follower of easy believism. When I was in my mid-twenties, I began to feel God calling me to himself. The Lord was working in a number of ways in my life, but I was fighting against him. God, in his mercy and grace, was drawing, me, was drawing near to me, and I was trying to keep him at arm's length. I thought I was happy being a nominal Christian. But God wouldn't leave me alone. He kept putting people in my life and putting me in situations where I was spending time with true Christians, men and women who trusted in Christ alone for their salvation, people whose faith was based on the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, not on their own works, and people whose lives reflected the love of Jesus as their Lord and King. My new Christian friends were fun to be around, They were interesting. I was eager to be with them and to hear them talk about their faith. I found myself desiring to know more about God, to know more about his word, and to understand what it meant. It was during this time, in God's sovereign plan, that I made an appointment to get my hair cut at a salon downtown. I know that seems ridiculous now, but this was the 80s and I had big hair. So I could warrant going downtown to get my hair cut at a salon. Anyway, the stylist that I was going to be seeing was a Christian, and I'd heard that he was very outspoken about his faith. I arrived for my appointment, he called me back to his chair, and immediately he started asking me questions about my relationship with Jesus. I was embarrassed. I was very uncomfortable talking about these things in public. The more he talked, the quieter I got. He just wouldn't let it go. He kept probing me, asking me questions about my faith and my relationship with the Lord. He finally said to me, I don't know if you're a Christian or not, but I know you're ashamed of Jesus. And then he quoted to me from Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, that says, this is where Jesus says, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I came in to get my hair cut, and this guy's telling me that Jesus is going to reject me because of my my lukewarm faith. Jesus isn't going to save me just because I know who he is. Jesus wants a commitment and a relationship. He requires a changed life, not easy believism. There should be evidence of my faith reflected through my works. Now, in the book of Revelation, John opens by stating that he's writing to the seven churches of Asia. Then in chapters 2 and 3, 
John records seven messages to these churches where Jesus gives instructions warning the churches based on their response to persecution and tribulation, based on their treatment of others, based on their commitment to and their daily walk with him. And in five of those seven messages, he says, I know your works or I know your deeds. He doesn't say, I know that you claim to have faith. He says, I know your works. Jesus calls out the deeds and works of the churches as evidence of their faith. Well, the stylist was right. I was neither hot nor cold. There was no evidence that my life had been changed by my faith. I was trying to keep one foot in the world by calling myself a Christian. I had refused to surrender to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I was simply an easy believer. I left the salon, and I sat in my vehicle thinking about these things for a long time. I knew that God was calling me into a relationship. I knew that I was being stubborn and hard-headed by ignoring and refusing his call. I knew that I was a sinner in need of God's saving mercy and grace. I knew that the faith that I had claimed was not a living faith that saves. It wasn't even a lukewarm faith. It was a faith without works. It was a dead faith. That afternoon, sitting in a parking garage in downtown Charleston, I asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior and to change my life. I no longer wanted to be lukewarm. I no longer wanted to be an easy believer. I wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit and live a life that demonstrates my faith in Jesus, a life that reflects my love for Jesus. That was almost 30 years ago. Like all of you, I continue to struggle against sin and the cares of this world, but I know without a doubt that my sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Christ died for me, his body broken and his blood shed in my place. Like Abraham, I believe, and through my faith, a faith received by grace alone, I'm counted as righteous. I can stand before God fully justified, not based on anything I have done or will do, but based on the finished work of Jesus. I also know that my life reflects my faith, not perfectly, not completely, but there's evidence of the Holy Spirit working in and through me to make me more and more like Christ. My works are not the source of my salvation, but rather my life and works confirm my salvation. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, we read, Examine yourselves to see whether, there, whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Peter says something similar in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, where he tells us that we must confirm our calling and our election. Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you're not sure about your faith, if you think you might be an easy believer, claiming to be a Christian because you repeated a simple prayer, but without any real evidence of a changed life, 
then you need to examine yourself. You need to confirm your calling and your election. Yes, we're saved through faith by grace, and that saving faith must produce fruit of good works. As James says in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Fortunately, God has not asked me to demonstrate my faith in a dramatic way that he asked of Abraham, but my life does reflect my obedience to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My faith affects the way I act and the things that I do. The Holy Spirit is transforming the way I think about others, enabling me to show them the love of Jesus. As James writes in chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. My prayer for each of us is that the world might see our faith through our works, a faith based on the all-sufficient work of Jesus, a faith received through grace alone, and a faith that affects the way we act and the things that we do, a faith that reflects the love of Jesus. Let's pray.